you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the September 28th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we take a walk on the wild side with the late Hollywood lawn, and in Facing Fear, we give you a story of love conquering hate and revisit an early piece from Steve Pride on the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Sister, sister, there were never such devoted sisters. Never had to have a chaperone, no sir. I'm here to keep my eye on her. Caring, sharing, every little thing that we are wearing. Every year when I see them at the Pride Parade, decked out in nuns' habits and wild makeup, I wonder who they are, where they came from, and what they hope to accomplish. So recently, I decided to take to the streets and find out a bit more about these Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Lord, help the mister who comes between me and my sister. And Lord, help the sister who comes between me and my man. I am Allison Arngrum, uh, known to many people as Nellie Olson from Little House in the Prairie, commonly known as the Prairie Bitch. I've, I've been hanging out with the nuns for a while. Are, are you an honorary nun? Uh, they're talking about a possible sainting, yes. Uh, uh, they have those celebrity sainting parties where they read even more silly poetry and have a ritual. Um, sometime back, I, well, I always rather liked them. I used to see, you know, the, the nuns in the parade, and what I always liked is that at the gay parade, even people who were seemingly the most outrageous people you knew, they could be standing there wearing a dress, the sisters would show up and they'd say, now, I don't know, that may be going too far. And, and people were always somewhat shocked, yet to me, they were a combination of mime, kabuki, and the 90s version of the Shriners. And I always liked them. And then when I actually met the sisters at Gay Bingo, was uh, the first time I met them, and I found out what fabulous work they're doing, and not to mention got really close look at those fabulous costumes and makeup, I started doing a lot of events with them and helping them raise money, and they've helped raise money for some of my favorite charities, like Tuesday's Child, which helps families with children with HIV. And your name is? I'm Vibrata Electric. And how long have you been a part of the order? Um, about uh, 18 months. And you felt a calling? Yeah, you could say that. I definitely felt that this was something that um, I had to do, I wanted to do. 
Now, many, many people would be surprised that there are female members of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Well, there are females in all 18 houses around the world, and the order is open to gays, lesbians, transsexuals, bisexuals, and heterosexuals. After meeting Allison and Sister Vibrata Electra, many of my stereotypes about the group were out the window. But I still had questions, so I asked Sister Justina Nicotime to drop by the studio and give me more of the 411. Tell me a little bit about the history of the, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Okay. Well, um, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence started back in 1979 in San Francisco, and it was started by gay men in San Francisco who had some nuns' habits laying around, and they were bored one afternoon, and they decided to put them on, hit the town, have some fun. It just grew from there because they got a really tremendous response. The community loved it, and they were activists already, so it just kind of grew out of that, and they started making appearance and doing little fundraisers, and people started joining, and it just it grew from there. So it's, it's had a long history. They were one of the first groups of any kind anywhere to pass out safe sex pamphlets. So they had a lot of firsts, a lot of things that have just kind of grown, and that's really what the whole Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence has done. It's, there's houses all over the world now. Why do the sisters wear makeup? Now it's been so long that the sisters have been wearing makeup. It's basically just part of our rules because now you're very recognizable as a sister when you have the makeup on. It started originally with one of the sisters in the early days back in San Francisco deciding that he didn't want to be recognized. Uh, I, I suppose he had a job where he didn't really want people knowing he was running around a nun drag. So he came up with this white face, and it's, it's a great look. It's very striking, and it grew from there. So now it's just become part of our habit, part of our, you know, look, and like I said, it's very recognizable, so it's, uh, it's fun, too. Well, how do you become a nun? Is there a path? Yes, there is, actually. There's a path. Even though we do have a lot of fun, and we are festive, we like to believe, we do take it seriously because we don't want people starting and be becoming a nun and saying, oh, after two months, this is really too much, I'm, I'm too tired, because uh, it is a lot of work, though it's not just, oh, I want to look pretty one afternoon and, and run out and do it. What's well, a big commitment? Could you take vows of I guess chastity? Oh no, no vows. <laughs> no, no vows of chastity. But we do take vows of commitment. Commitment to following the rules that we do have and raising money. But no, there's no rules of chastity because we believe sex is a good thing. Expound on that. Uh, what else do the sisters believe in? Well, you know, and, and, and again, I, I want to just say I am speaking in general for the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence worldwide. The rules and what we're about are basically the same around the world. Each house does have its emphasis and, you know, detailed beliefs. But in Los Angeles, the sisters believe in making people feel happy, raising money to help charity, getting to know yourself. We want people to explore and get to know themselves. Are there members of the order who aren't sisters? We have an extended family is what we like to think of it. And uh, yes, there are. First off, when you are a fully professed member of the house, you may manifest in any manner you want to. So you can say, uh, most people do prefer to manifest as a sister, so therefore they look like the nun and they have a sister name. However, uh, even a sister or anyone else that's in the order can manifest as something else, say for instance a father figure, an altar boy, any type of you know religious figure that they want to, goddess, god, whatever they want to do, they can be very creative. We do also have within the house many uh, members, like I said, that are extended family, which are saints, 
we do saint people in the community that have done a lot of charity work, either for the community in general or with the sisters. Well, that's very different than some of the more mainstream churches where saints are simply people who work miracles with their hands. <laughs> yes. Well, some of our saints work miracles with their hands, too. <laughs> and as a nun, I assume you can both sing and fly. <laughs> yes. Well, I've been told I can fly, although most of my friends say it's usually with the um, help of a broom. <laughs> but... <laughs> And I haven't caught a strong enough breeze to let that coronet lift me off the ground. I've got to call Sally Field up and see. <laughs> this is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. More information can be found at thesisters.org. Holly Woodlawn was a transgender Puerto Rican actress and Warhol superstar, who appeared in the movies Trash and Women in Revolt. She's best known as the Holly in Lou Reed's hit pop song, Walk on the Wild Side. In one of Steve Pride's earliest reports for IMRU, and most award-winning, he did his first of many interviews with the opinionated actress while sprawled on her living room floor. Gender-bending pioneer Holly Woodlawn shot to fame in a 1970 Andy Warhol film called Trash. Cast as the offbeat girlfriend of a good-looking junkie, played by Warhol favorite Joe D'Alessandro, her debut was critically lauded. It was at the height of Warhol's popularity and the success of Trash thrust underground movies into the light, where they quickly became legitimized as independent films. Holly Woodlawn's performance is made all the more remarkable by the fact that in this film, made shortly after the Stonewall Riots, she completes the job of leading lady with no allusion to her biological gender. I took this occasion to drop by Holly's West Hollywood apartment for a chat about Trash, Andy Warhol, and her walk on the wild side. Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA. Plucked her eyebrows on the way, shaved her legs, and then he was a she. She says, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. I just wanted to go to New York, get out of Florida. So I only had $11 to my name, and uh, I took a bus to a little city outside of, um, uh, Atlanta called Brunswick where um, the bus driver threw me off the bus and uh, I, there was a, a thunderstorm going on that night. So I, I seeked shelter in this little motel on the side of the road and I was struck by lightning. Yes. And, and so the uh, proprietors of the motel gave me a free room that night and that's when I shaved my legs and plucked my eyebrows. And I, you know, I haven't been the same since. So the next day I stuck my finger out and started hitchhiking. A week later I landed in New York City and... Uh, Five years later, I met Andy Warhol. Well, actually, Paul Morrissey. He's the one that um, uh, filmed Trash. I was hanging out at Max's Kansas City where, well, you know, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, you know, all the Warhol crowd were, were hanging out. 1969, that, that year, a lot of stuff happened. A Man in the Moon, you know, the Sharon Tate murders. I mean, Robert Kennedy, the Stonewall. Uh, so that was quite a year for, for America. And I was right in the middle. And they were shooting this movie, and I guess I, I was typecast as a lowlife. <laughs> Garbage-picking lowlife. No, but um, uh, he asked me if I would do a scene in the movie, and then that scene just like sort of like blossomed into like a co-starring role. And uh, Trash came out. Um, uh, I, I, was in, I was in jail for that, <laughs> for the premiere of Trash, but that's another story. 
and uh, got these incredible reviews, and uh, the rest is history. Good memories, you know. I was right in the middle. I mean, the vortex of all that stuff. I mean, you know, the underground Warhol, Studio 54, free love drugs that were decent drugs. I mean, you know, not God. And still survived all that, all that insanity. Like a cockroach here, I feel already. <laughs> Tell me about the making of Trash. Trash was the first and, the, and, of course, the most notorious. I also did another one for Warhol, uh, another Morrissey film. I mean, everybody actually, you know, I, I have to get the record straight. Andy Warhol produced the movie. He just actually put his name to it. Andy was very big at that, just putting his name, you know, I mean, because he did not discover the Campbell soup can. But uh, he sure made a lot of money off of it. But Paul Morrissey was the uh, the driving force, the director he did everything, uh, you know, film, filmmaker, uh, except writing the script. There was no script to um, either Trash or um, or Women in Revolt or any or any of Andy's movies. Uh, but basically, what Paul did was just uh, he uh, picked people that had character that you know that were fascinating or you know had something to say or do on the screen, and just uh, roll the camera. Paul would you know set up the scene. You know, like Holly in the scene, you know, you're having sex with a beer bottle because Joe won't go to sleep with you, you know. And I, of course, <laughs> being the true method actrice that I am, went for it. You know. Ouch. Okay. Trash is on DVD. It's on video. It's back in the theaters. Are you making just tons of money? Oh, no, please. I, I almost choked on my Coke. Coca-Cola. Uh, $25. Well, actually, for the whole movie, I made 125 because it was $25 a scene. And at that time, I just signed a release. I did. There was no contract. You know, meanwhile, the first couple weeks that Trash came out, it made several million. What made Andy Warhol special? You know, the whole thing, there was nothing, absolutely nothing about Warhol. I mean, Andy Warhol was as uh, as transparent and as flimsy as tissue paper. It was the people around him. It was everything around him. You know, I guess that's his genius. He was a magnet, you know. I mean, all everyone around him were the ones that were brilliant, you know. He was like no solar system like the sun where heat radiates out, you know. Andy just, he was like a black hole. Andy just went around saying, oh, how glamorous. Oh, do that. Oh, you know, I mean, he just agreed to everything, you know. And everybody else, I mean, of course, everybody was on drugs. He wasn't. And if he was, who wanted that drug? Little Joe never once gave it away. Everybody had to pay and pay A hustle here and a hustle there New York City is the place where they said Hey babe, take a walk on the wild side I said, hey Joe, take a walk on the wild side Joe D'Alessandro He, my co-star, he's, he was, in the, he was the, the, the stud in Morrissey's films Flesh, Heat, Trash yeah. They weren't big for, like, large titles. He was a sweetheart. He was very nice. And, of course, in Trash, you know, the, the, there's nudity, but it's not pornographic nudity. And, um, darling, that, that butt, that butt is held up by, well, youth, of course. <laughs>
Yeah. Holly, it's been years since you took that trip, immortalized in the Lou Reed song, Walk on the Wild Side. How have times changed? When I was around in the 60s, that if you did anything like that, you were arrested. I mean, there were, you know, there were laws and a lot of harassment. Now, you know, you go to New York, please. I mean, they're all over the place. It's like nothing. It's yawn, yawn, yawn. So what? So you wear a dress. And RuPaul, I mean, you know, it's like Ru's doing commercials for beer and makeup and stuff. I mean, you know. And uh, all those girls say that, you know, I was the groundbreaker, you know. Wonderful. Now now I need the money. <laughs> I'm tired of breaking ground. I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, This has been a conversation with Holly Woodlawn. Holly Woodlawn's autobiography, A Low Life in High Heels, is, as they say, soon to be a major motion picture. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Thank you. It was a lovely Sunday morning spending it with you, Stephen. Of course, it's now been 50 years since Trash was released, and it's available to stream on YouTube. You can find the link on the IMRU Radio Facebook page. We'll be right back after this break. Roy and Silo, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The charming children's picture book, And Tango Makes Three, tells the true story of two chinstrap penguins in New York's Central Park Zoo, who hatched and raised a chick together. Published in 2005, this brightly illustrated book was named an American Library Association notable children's book the next year. However, because the two penguins were of the same sex, a few parents objected to children reading the book. The American Library Association reported it was the most challenged book of 2006 and 2007. In September of 2008, in observance of Banned Book Week, dozens gathered at Pioneer Court in downtown Chicago to hear the authors read from their book. Sponsored by the Chicago Tribune, the events celebrated the right of the book to exist. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Andrea Westcott. Hi, this is Sam Harris, singer, actor, author, husband, dad. I'm so many things I'm about to explode. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine. It's a gay bar. Well, hell, I've, I've you know, I've, I've had a little fun with the fellows now, now and then, but, you know, if you're going to have a bar, you got to have ladies. Well, well, of course you can buy me a drink. Right, but... Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And you're listening to IMRU Radio. The Boys in the Band, considered a seminal piece of queer storytelling in the 20th century, follows a group of gay men who convene in a New York City apartment for a friend's birthday party. As the evening continues, the cracks beneath their friendships begin to show, bringing to light self-inflicted heartache and identity crises. 
The play has been called a true theatrical game changer. The Boys in the Band helped spark a revolution by putting gay men's lives on stage, unapologetically and without judgment, in a world that was not yet willing to fully accept them. It was adapted into a feature film in 1970, likewise one of the first focusing on the lives of gay men. The play premiered off-Broadway in 1968 and was revived on-Broadway for its 50th anniversary in 2018 with an all-star and all-gay cast. This year, that production has birthed a film remake on Netflix with the 2018 production's original cast and director. That director, Joe Mantello, explains the genesis of the project. It was really Ryan Murphy's idea and his vision from the very beginning that we would do a revival of the play on Broadway and that would culminate with a new version of the film. And I was slightly apprehensive about it. Looking back on it now, I don't know why, because I've come to really love the play so much and really have newfound respect and admiration for Mark's crafting of it the whole time. I don't want to say I had to be talked into it, but I didn't jump at the opportunity. On complaints that the play, written in the 60s, has a sense of gay shame. I don't think it's entirely about gay shame. I think having worked on it, I found that there was so much more dimension to it than I think it's given credit for. Certainly the character of Michael, you know, I think we can all agree, is really struggling with profound shame. I find moments of heroism and tenderness among the other characters, which is not to say that shame is not in the room. Obviously it is. But I don't think you can paint it with such a broad brush to say that's all it's about. Matt Bomer stars as Donald and knew little about the boys in the band going in. I really didn't know much about the piece at all, to be honest with you. I knew a little bit about the freaking film, but I wasn't familiar with it at all. And to be honest with you, so much of my understanding of gay history began with Harvey Milk. So, so much of, especially we did a few readings of this early on, and so much of that was just familiarizing myself with the time period and everything that was going on in these men's day-to-day lives. And, and it just continued to strike me how courageous Mark Crowley was in putting this play on stage, a gay play for a mainstream audience it was unprecedented at the time. And, and also the courage of this original cast who, you know, really took a, a bold risk in their career to tell this story. So I think when you understand the context socially of what they're all going through day to day, it really does put a lot of their behaviors into perspective. Tuck Watkins plays Hank, a character who has left a wife and two kids. I wasn't very familiar with the play or the movie either, but for a different reason, I was afraid of it. I was scared of it. I was scared of reading a play like that or seeing a movie like that because I thought if anyone sees me doing that when I was in my 20s or even 30s, I thought people will know I'm gay. So I guess you call that gay shame for sure. But when Joe called to say we're doing a reading of this and Ryan was producing it, early on, Ryan said, we need more stories about LGBTQ history. We just do. And I agree with that. And what this play is, it is a bit of a timepiece, but the timepiece that it is, it's a slice of life of what it was like to be gay in the late 60s. And I think it's important that we investigate that. In the original production, there may have been a few gay actors, but no one was out. This is an openly gay cast. 
How did that impact the production? Obviously, there is a kind of a shorthand that I think we discovered that we all had in the room. Director Joe Mantello. Because we were all gay men, but certainly for the roles where we auditioned people, we did not limit it to gay actors, which is illegal. So no, 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 we sort of cast a wide net, and Ryan and I talked about the characters and who we thought the best actors might be for those roles. That was really what was defeating the all the decisions. Did it make a difference to the actors that their castmates were gay? Well, in a play that has nine gay characters, for those gay characters to be played by nine gay actors, there's an empowerment to that. So much of my career was spent in the closet. Actor? Tuck Watkins. And most of the roles I was up for, I mean, I wanted to be James Bond. So I couldn't tell everybody I was gay because they're not going to let a gay guy be James Bond yet. I think that's probably coming up. But for that reason alone, it felt very empowering. In a production, there's usually one gay character or maybe two gay characters. And up until very recently, they would always hire one straight guy and one gay guy just to make sure that everybody was okay with those characters. So when it turned out that, that everyone in the cast who was playing every one of the characters was gay, it kind of felt like we were invited to be part of the Gay Justice League. <laughs> At the end of that play, when we came to the lip of the stage and we held hands and we took a bow, it kind of felt like each one of us with our separate superpowers was lined up and it felt like we had providence at our backs. It was a really cool feeling. I think it absolutely informed our sense of ensemble. Actor Matt Bomer. And it informed the work. And what I love about this particular group of actors is that everybody came to day one of rehearsal with their sleeves rolled up, ready to do the work and to explore this piece under the guidance of a great director like Joe and really plummet for everything that we could. So I'm really proud that it was this group of guys. What were the differences in doing this today over 1968? Well, I mean, the question that we always ask ourselves is, what could we do today that probably would have been a slightly more complicated choice to make in 1968, 1969? And certainly the eroticism that exists between men was a big thing. I think it's a big component in our film that I think was slightly dicier then. And I know that because there's a wonderful documentary called Making the Boys. Which we'll get to in a bit. What did they take away from the project? I think it's given me the opportunity to really consider the fact that any freedom that I feel that I have as a gay man is because of guys like that in the 60s. We're standing on the shoulders of giants, people who came before us gay men and women, who paved a path so that I can live the way that I live today. And while I was aware of that, I feel like I really came to appreciate that. Yeah, again, I'm just struck by the courage of Mark Crowley in this original cast to put this on stage and to have paved the way for us. It is an inherently political play in some ways because it's about the cost of stagnation and you can't help but watch it especially in the context of seeing it in 1968 and think something's got to change these guys are going to be stuck in this play forever unless something really changes and so i think we owe a great deal to martin i think there are enough pieces now in the gay canon and i do think this is a definitive piece for the gay canon that we can appreciate this for what it is and for what we owe to it. The Boys in the Band debuts on Netflix September 30th. According to Matt Crowley, 
The title is a line in A Star is Born, when James Mason tells a distraught Judy Garland, you're singing for yourself and the boys in the band. And as Tuck Watkins mentioned, the documentary Making the Boys is a go-to primer on the boys in the band. Luckily, Steve Pride interviewed its director, Creighton Roby, on the documentary's release. Happy birthday, Earl. You're stoned and you're late. You were supposed to arrive at this location at approximately 8.30-9 o'clock. What I am, Michael, is a 32-year-old, ugly, pockmarked Jew fairy. And if it takes me a while to pull myself together, and if I smoke a little grass before I get up the nerve to show my face to the world, it's nobody's business but my own. And how are you this evening? My name is Creighton Roby, and I am the director and producer of Making the Boys. The film is a look at Mark Crowley and his groundbreaking play, The Boys and the Band. It places the play and subsequent movie into a historical context, and it traces the evolution of the play and the impact of the work through the 60s through the present day. Who was Mart Crowley? Mart is from Mississippi, and he got a great break by being the personal assistant to the grand director, Ilya Kazan. And along the way, he was working on a movie called Splendor of the Grass that starred Natalie Wood. Mart and Natalie met, and they became fast friends. So when Splendor in the Grass was ending, Natalie had just been cast in uh, West Side Story, and she needed a personal assistant. And uh, Mart was going to be out of work, so she asked if he would do the job for her, and he did. And uh, she brought him out to Los Angeles, and their friendship and their working relationship began. And she introduced Mart to all of her fancy New York industry contacts as well as her friends and she kind of like helped start his career and he was moving along he was really looked on as a really really talented writer but none of his works were really being produced and it wasn't until really he wrote The Boys in the Band where he was able to make some kind of impact as a writer. Talk about that impact. Why was The Boys in the Band so important? At this particular time in America, homosexuality was against the law. It was considered just taboo. Homosexuals were just pretty much invisible in society and uh, really looked down upon. And when this play hit the stage, it introduced the audiences to homosexuals with feelings. And it was provocative. And it really started a positive conversation. And the work opened in New York, then it opened in theaters around the United States, and then around the world. And it became that art piece that people had to see. People just started talking about it. It was just very controversial at the time. It's hard to imagine today that homosexuality was such a big topic. But everybody who's anybody went to see it. Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim, Jackie O, Barbara Walters. It was just the show to see at that time. It was just such a, a big, big hit. The journey from stage to screen took less than two years, but it straddled both sides of a gay revolution. The Boys in the Band debuted before Stonewall. And what was so significant about that, all the people that came to see it, a lot of them were young gay men, young gay activists in evolution. They were ascending to being these things, and it gave them inspiration to speak out and to do a lot of things. And at that particular time, like I 
had previously stated that homosexuality was against the law, and homosexuals could not assemble in public. So when the boys in the band came out, it was a big thing, and it was very modern. So a year later, when the Stone Route Rebellion happened in the village, the placement of the homosexuality in society had shifted drastically because now it was the time for people to claim their space. And homosexuals had fought for the respect to be able to assemble in public. And once they started doing that and they could actually have conversations with their brothers and sisters in public, they could start building a foundation of a community. And so where the boys in the band was a closeted little culture that happened in 1968, by 1969, the climate had changed. People did not have patience to deal with, with people that just coming out. We were out of the closet now. We were here. We're queer. We need to express ourselves, and we need rights. We're not going to be quiet anymore because we are beyond that moment. So the boys and the man got caught up all in it. And the boys and the man was such a success. You know, Hollywood gave a calling, and literally like two weeks before the Stonewall Rebellion, they had started shooting the feature film that was directed by the great director William Friedkin. And by the time the movie was ready to be seen by an audience, the whole climate of sexuality and homosexuality and gay visibility had totally changed. And the boys in the band appeared to many as a dated piece. Is our community now at a place where we can better understand the impact? Coming out is still so hard today. You know, we take it all like for granted. And everybody has their own journey into it. It's so fantastic when you, we see this wide gay community that has evolved over the years and it got really corporate because it had to during the years of the AIDS epidemic and it's a blessing and a curse because you know you you get this fantastic numbers in these corporations but I think the call for action that was so immediate and so groundbreaking in the late 60s, early 70s, has kind of shifted. And we're kind of like mixing into mainstream society and people are, are realizing that, that they can make money off of us in so many different ways. It just got to be really, really, really complicated. But at the core of it, you know, young people are still coming out. Guys that are married and women that are married that are realizing that they have been hiding these feelings, they can do it now. And thank God for like shows like Grey's Anatomy, having a fantastic featured lesbian couple it's just pretty amazing, and we live in such a wonderful world, and we still have to work really, really hard, but I think it's much better today than it was in 1968. I've known what I was since I was four years old. I don't know when it was I first started admitting it to myself. For a long time, I either labeled it something else or denied it completely. Christ was I drunk last night. But there did come a time when I just couldn't lie to myself anymore. I've come across a lot of teenagers and people like in their early 20s. They are into like just celebrating it. Just don't accept me. I celebrate you and your lifestyle. It's part of my world. And it's really interesting just to see what's going to happen like 10 years down the line. You know, I think that older people are still like caught up in their generation but the world is passing people by, and so they need to, like, wake up and just uh, hopefully accept and celebrate. But as Creighton points out in his documentary, younger gays and lesbians are often baffled by any mention of this play or movie. I don't know, boys in the band. 
I like wish me? I had a boy that was in a band. Right. But no, I, don't I don't know nothing about the boys in the band. What is the boys in the band? Mark Colley, boys in the band. Heard of it? Never seen it. Who the hell is Mark Crowley? I think there's a certain age of guys that know about it. And unless someone's passing it down to you or talking about it, you don't get it. You don't understand the significance of it. You may hear about it. And I think, unfortunately, like when the AIDS epidemic happened, we just kind of lost like a major generation of men. And people just didn't pass down that history. There was nobody to really pass it down. And the ones that were left behind were kind of like under a cloud. And... I think it's just a great time to just open the door and just step in and just embrace our legacies as we move forward and become more vibrant in society. You weren't born when the play first opened or the movie came out. How did you learn about it? Wow. When I was 16 years old in Houston, Texas, where I'm from, I was questioning my own sexual identity. And there was a guy who was going to eventually become my boyfriend, but in this particular moment, I didn't know it. We were just buddies. And I was talking about my current girlfriend and how when we kissed, I didn't feel fireworks. Now I wanted to feel some fireworks. So he lunges in and he kisses me, and I feel fireworks. And then he does it again. And then our teacher stops us and calls us into his office. And we totally, like, freak out. And he just sat us down and he just looked at us and he said, Do you boys know why you're here? And we just said, boy, shouldn't I be kissing each other? This is awful. And, and he says, you don't get it. So he reached in his desk, and uh, he pulled out two copies of Mark Crawley's The Boys in the Band. He handed it to us, and he told us to read it and to come back the following week to discuss it. And uh, that was my introduction. What do you want the audience to take away from Making the Boys? I really, 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 really love Mark Crawley. And I just wanted to archived this story and I wanted it to be just a great history for everyone. You know, for younger people, I wanted people to embrace this and celebrate it. And I want to honor the legacy of the people that really like laid the foundation so we can really celebrate all these rights and have all these freedoms. When you really think about 1968 and how everything was just in a totally different place in our culture and everything was behind closed doors and we could be arrested just for like just looking at someone in a open public space it's totally blows my mind and i just wish that it serves as just something that we can just be proud of as americans you know i think this was a time in which our country really was kind of able to like say oh my god the homosexuals really, really do exist, and people are really having these conversations, which is kind of cool. Gay people, straight people, black people, white people, you know, it's like, it's, it's so wonderful that it happened. And it's just one thing out of many, but it was an important moment. This has been a conversation with writer, director, producer, Creighton Roby, about his documentary, Making the Boys. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. After this quick break. Penguin Parenting, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. A few parents have objected to the book And Tango Makes Three because it depicts two penguins of the same sex caring for a penguin chick. Parents in Missouri had the book moved to the school library's nonfiction section. A Calvert County, Maryland parent wanted it removed from the children's section, saying the book's references to the penguins sleeping together was an obvious reference to sexual behavior. 
Some Shiloh, Illinois parents wanted it to be put in a restricted section, requiring parent permission prior to checking the book out. In Loudoun County, Virginia, the book was moved to the teacher's reference shelf. The true story of Roy and Silo only reinforces what scientists have observed since the time of Aristotle. Same-sex pairing has occurred in nature since recorded history. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Andrea Westcott. Hello, I'm Dennis Shepard, Matthew Shepard's father, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Well, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you, Leo. Uh, it's an honor. You're one of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hollywood's brightest young stars. I particularly liked you in that, uh, that, 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 that boat movie. Um, yeah, I was, uh, was uh, you know, I was wondering if uh, maybe you'd like to come back to my place. Uh, I, I think you're kind of pretty. What do you mean you're not interested? You, you, you can't say no to me. I'm, 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 I'm Jimmy Stewart. I'm a, I'm a movie star. You don't say no to Jimmy Stewart, you stupid little pretty boy. What Jimmy Stewart wants, Jimmy Stewart gets. Got it? Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Nominated for the Academy Award for Best Short Subject Documentary, Facing Fear reminds us of the power of love over hate. And isn't that something we need right now? You have got to be taught to hate and fear Day after day, year after year Hello, this is Tim Zoll, a former racist skinhead. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. Hello, I am Matthew Boger. You've got to be carefully taught. Tell me your story. When I was 13 years old, I was thrown out of my house by my mom when I identified as being gay. Forced to live on the streets for four and a half years. About seven or eight months while I was living on the streets of Los Angeles in Plummer Park in West Hollywood, one night I was the victim of 10 or 12 neo-Nazi punks who beat me in an alley, left me there for dead. I'm assuming believed they had killed me. 26 years later, after a long career doing something else, I went to manage the Museum of Tolerance, which I still do, and befriended a former neo-Nazi who turned out to have been one of the guys that were in the alley that night. Tell me your story, your side. Um, hmm. Basically, I grew up in the East San Gabriel Valley area in a predominantly Anglo neighborhood. And when I was very young, my brother was shot by an African-American man. He did survive, but of course that left me with uh, fear of minorities and resentment and things of that nature. When I got into my teen years, I was angry, young, suburban kid, got involved with the hardcore punk scene here in L.A., you know, violence was at the core of what we were doing. And I was uh, what they called a Nazi punk. So, you know, uh, the punk scene was predominantly violent at that time anyhow. And the Nazi punks took things a little bit further. After that, I went on to get involved with organized hate groups. I was fairly high up on the food chain. 
I was director of operations, recruitment, and propaganda for the White Area Resistance, and, and Tom Metzger made a change in my life uh, in my late 20s, early 30s, when I became a parent, and I grew a conscience all of a sudden. I think it was hiding there the whole time, but I did grow a conscience, and I ended up at the Museum of Tolerance a couple years afterwards. And I've been there ever since. I've been there for 12 years now. What actually got me going to initially go to the Museum of Tolerance was I had a friend who was a former racist skinhead who worked at the Museum of Tolerance, and he left, which opened the door for me. And so I've been there for for 12 years. Well, take me back to your first encounter with Matthew. Mm -hmm. How old were you? 17. And what did you think of gay people? At that time, it was a mixture of fear, um, not understanding, anger, territorial things going on, because also back in those days, you had the LAPD, you had the gay community, and you had the punk rockers in the Hollywood area, and we were clashing. And anybody who would get into our way when we were on a rampage stood the chance of getting hurt. This particular evening, it happened to be Matthew and his friends. And we had left a nightclub where we had been hassled by the police on the way to the place where the attack took place. We did stop several times to get out of the car and slap people around and be big and macho and tough. And then by the time we had gotten to Okie Dogs, which was the name of the the hamburger stand where the uh, attack took place, somebody shouted, let's kill the faggots. And sounded like a good idea. And I partook in the violence. And that was not uncommon for me. It made me feel good. It made me feel tough. It made me feel like I was in control. It made me feel like I had power. And obviously, I graduated to bigger and better or badder, depending on your perspective, things later on in life. Were you angry? Was it hate? It was hate. It was frustration. It was not feeling like I fit in. I don't believe that there's anything exclusive about people who get involved with hate groups in comparison with, say, a gang or any sort of violent, radical subculture or lifestyle. I think that's a, a major misconception. A lot of the problems are the same, are the same causes, whether it's family problems, whether it's uh, you know daddy problems, whether it's uh, socioeconomic. You know, I could have become a, a drug addict, an alcoholic, a gang member, any of the above. However, because of my upbringing and because of my ethnicity and because of, I believe, especially my brother being shot by an African-American man and surviving, it was a natural sort of thing for me. I took years and years and years of German in junior high school. For some reason, I was, uh, I don't know, uh, led in that direction. I was intrigued by the whole Nazi thing. Matthew, what do you remember of him that night? Well, I only remember one thing about Tim, and that was his boot. Um, I the, the memory of his boot was the one that kicked me in the forehead that sort of left the scar that's on there now. That was sort of the one that stands out in my mind. The last memory of that night of, before I went unconscious was watching the 10 or 12 guys kind of high-five each other and seem to be very sense of bravado and, and proud of what they had done. Those are the memories that stick out the most. And how did you know who it was when you met again? Well, I didn't recognize him physically. Totally different 
look in person. We actually worked together for several months. We sort of became work acquaintances, friends, talking every week when he would come in to do his presentation. The way I knew who he was was when we had a conversation. We were sitting there talking, and the conversation went kind of back to where where we grew up, where we hung out, what we did, you know, just telling him that I was a street kid. And I don't remember the exact words, but I believe he had said something along the lines of, we used to hang out at Okie Dogs as well until this one night where it had gotten really violent. That's when I knew who I was sitting across from because nobody knew what happened in that alley but myself and the people that carried out the attack. And what year was that? 1980. It was very shortly after I was thrown out. I was thrown out in 1979. And obviously that was the worst incident. But were there other incidents living on the street in Hollywood in the 80s? Not violent attacks. There were, you know, there was a constant victimization of children out there who, you know, there was no way to get around that or to avoid it because I was this little 13 and 14-year-old trying to survive. So the victimization was different. It wasn't necessarily hate. It was other things that went on on the streets. But those also took place as well. And how did it change you? What was the aftermath of that? Well, hmm. <laughs> I think after I got off the street, I mean, yeah, I was a tough kid with a foul mouth and had an attitude problem and resentment and abandonment issues. And most people understand after I explain it, I had a resentment against the gay community because those victimizations came from other gay men and sort of had to spend 17 years consistently in therapy to end up where I am today. What do you want people to take away from your stories? <laughs> I, you know, it's one of those things where the possibility to change and to forgive, everybody has that ability to do that, whether they search with inside themselves. Forgiveness actually is that process which then sets you free from the incident without letting the other person be less accountable, or it sets you free from the incident the moment that defines you so that you can then redefine yourself and move forward. That moment had defined a lot of my life and had defined in a way of fear. So I lived sort of in this place of fear of certain things that came from that night. They could be little things, people with bald heads, you know, certain areas of town. And there was also an anger that was sort of inside and a resentment that just kind of hung there. When I realized that the possibility of letting those things go through the process of forgiveness, I decided to embark on that journey and see where it led me. And one of the best examples I have of somebody who could not forgive was when Tim and I were in the Men's Central Jail last week doing this talk, there was a, a gentleman who angrily and vehemently discussed this guy who had raped him when he was 15 years old, and he could never forgive him. Yeah. And he goes, and I'll never even approach the idea. I hate him. And I looked right at him, and I simply said, you hear the anger in your voice? You hear that venom that's coming out of your mouth? And I said, what if you had a way of getting rid of that anger but not letting them off the hook? He then at the end said that he would then start to look into forgiving that person. And Tim, when you realized that this was the same person, what went through your mind? Uh, shock at first, a little bit of numbness. You know, I had been at the Museum of Tolerance for a while. I had never had to deal with victims of any of my past behaviors on a personal level. I mean, although I had been charged with hate crimes prior to hate crime laws being in effect, it was the first time I had to face-to-face deal with my past. And, and it was difficult. It was, and it still is, an ongoing process. I think one of the hardest things that I've dealt with out of this whole thing is guilt, shame, self-hatred, a lot of those type of things. There was days when I couldn't even look in the mirror without saying, you're a piece of crud. 
And when I would get up in the morning, I wouldn't want to go do our presentations that we did. However, I put one foot in front of the other one and did it. And the reason I did it is because it's healing. It heals me, it heals others, and it shows others that they can change. And I usually walk away from the experience feeling positive. Sometimes not, but again, it is an ongoing process. Could you have forgiven him? If somebody had done to me what I did to Matthew, I would hope that I would have the manhood, the strength to be able to to forgive. I don't know if I would be able to. I really, really don't. I hope I would because I know what it feels like to have that anger within you. And it's, it's like a festering infection that can explode at any time. And it's not a nice way to live. I lived it for many, many years with that anger and resentment within me. And once I was able to release that it made me into a different person as a result, and, and I feel freer as a result. And how has forgiveness helped you? How has forgiveness helped me? Um, well, I know that, um, for example, if, if there's something going on, if I have a resentment against somebody, if somebody has, I believe, treated me in a wrong manner, I have to let it go. You have to let it go. If I don't let it go, I haven't taken care of my serenity, my sanity, my peace of mind, my happiness in life. The longer I hold on to that sort of stuff, the worse it gets. So I recommend it. Are you friends? We are. People ask, how do you define your friendship? It's more familial than it is like that friendship where you go and hang out and have dinner. and It's more, you know... Like family style, you know, it's like I think of him as a family member. But we are friends. We do drive each other crazy a lot. (laughs) (laughs) This has been a conversation with Tim Zale and Matthew Boger. Their presentation, From Hate to Hope, is at the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles on the first Sunday of every month. And a short documentary about the duo called Facing Fear, produced, written, and directed by Jason Cohen, won the Audience Award at Outfest 2013. Find the film's website at facingfearmovie.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. It flies in the face of all your pride. It moves away the mad inside. It's always anger's own worst enemy. Even when the jury and the judge say you got a right to hold a grudge, the whisper in your ear saying set it free Facing Fear can be streamed on Amazon Prime. But fear not. There is time for a last word. And now, another episode of everyone's favorite soap opera, Gaze of Our Lives. Bernice. 
Come here. Yes, Harry. Where have you been? I went... Don't. No, you don't have to tell me, because the guilt on your face tells me you've been to another one of those damned women's rights meetings. Oh, Harry, You don't I try swear. to lie to me. You silly, stupid female. And you understand this. I won't have you acting like a man. Becoming obnoxious and aggressive. Do you hear? Yes, Harry, but I And if I you didn't. don't give a damn about me, you consider our child. Junior? Did you want him to grow up to be a queer? What? Look, it's a scientific fact that homes with an aggressive, dominant mother and a weak, passive father invariably turn out homosexual boys. Oh, my God. Well, that's not going to happen in this household, you hear? But, oh, my God, I'm afraid it's too late, Harry. What did you say, Bernice? Well, you see, I wasn't at a women's rights meeting tonight, Harry. I was at a meeting of the Daughters of Belitis. Whose daughters? The Daughters of Belitis. It's America's oldest and largest lesbian organization. Why, Junior turned me on to it. I've been attending meetings secretly for six months now, and I've met a wonderful woman named Janet. We're very much in love, and I've never been so happy. I, I, I can't believe my ears. Oh, and one more thing, Harry. What? Drop dead. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder... Because we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org, even during our hiatus from the -the over-the-air schedule during fun drives. And catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. My mama told me when I was young we're all born superstars She rolled my hair, put my lipstick on In the glass of her wine There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause he made you perfect, baby So hold your head up and you don't go far Listen to me when I say